Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we thank you this morning for the great gift that you have provided in Jesus Christ, your Son, who took on flesh, entered into his own creation, not only to become a man and to be born of a virgin and to live a perfect life, but to take upon himself our sin, to fulfill the covenant in his perfect righteousness and to impute that law-keeping to us, and to take upon his bruised back and torn shoulders and bleeding brow and pierced arms and pierced hands and side and feet the judgment for our sin as our eternal sacrifice. And as our high priest hung there, crucified for us, interceding for us on behalf of us at the cost of his own flesh and blood, our salvation was secured forever, eternally, once and for all. And on that day, when the price was paid, every demon in hell screamed in agony, and Satan himself and his every plan was thwarted. And the last enemy, death, was defeated and placed under our Savior's feet. And that which had the power to eternally separate us from a holy God was now bridged in the blood of the Son of God. On this day, we celebrate this each day that we gather. But on this day especially, as we see this work applied to hearts pictured in baptism itself, I pray for everyone listening to your word, everyone looking on during this service, that you would ignite within us the fires of appreciation, of worship, of glorious understanding for what was accomplished in the salvation, the only way, truth, and life, whereby we might enter into fellowship with God the Father, the Trinity, forever and ever, because of the glorious work of redemption. Now, as we turn to your scriptures, we pray that you would open our mind to the treasures therein contained and that you would write them upon our hearts so that we do not soon forget and give us, Lord, a deeper well from which to draw praises to your great name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great opportunity we have this morning to behold God's holy word together and also to behold a baptism where two of our own here in this fellowship will be baptized and in so doing will be a public testimony of their inclusion in the body of Christ. And it is a picture of their salvation. And so let's explore this picture this morning in Colossians chapter 2. I beg you to turn there with me in your scriptures. This morning's text will be from Colossians 2, 9 through 15. And we will consider in some depth the meaning of baptism under this title, The Beauty of Baptism. This morning, the aim of my message is to accompany today's baptism with an understanding of its significance. And I can think of few better places to turn in the scripture where some of what the intent behind this act is expounded by Paul as he encourages the church to stand in a day where their faith will be tested, but to do so fully clad, fully armed, and fully equipped with every means that God supplies, even the significance of baptism. So with your Bible open to Colossians 2, again, verses 9 through 15, would you stand with me for the reading 
of God's Word. Would you stand in reverence and fear as we behold these immortal words of truth delivered to us by the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.9 For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul, once again, as he encourages this church plant, this local church, he takes the time to unveil the significance of our salvation, pictured and proclaimed in baptism. And he does this for several reasons. He takes the time again to unveil the significance of our salvation, which is pictured and proclaimed in baptism. And he does this because he knows it will greatly benefit the church. He is concerned that this church plant and its members realize the full weight of their new life as believers in Jesus Christ, their Lord. He knows that these truths will equip them to walk as Christians in a pagan environment. As we turn to our text, we see him saying as much in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, according, according in thanksgiving, or abounding, excuse me, in thanksgiving. So again, the Apostle Paul is concerned that this church plant and its members realize the full weight of their new life as believers in Jesus Christ, and he knows that this will equip them to walk as Christians in a pagan environment. In a society where the Christian church is few and far between to say the very least. In a society where Christians were just a handful, a pocket here or there, in a city, in a city utterly overrun by unbelieving pagan thought. In an environment where the entire uh, scheme of things and the structure of the social environment, the government and all the means of employment virtually and the whole economy revolved around idolatry. Nevertheless, if this church understood, Paul was confident, if they understood what was proclaimed and pictured in baptism, they would nevertheless stand. He goes on, he knows that these realities will not just equip them to walk as Christians among pagans, but he knows that these realities will cause them to do more, to flourish in their spiritual growth. Note Colossians 2.7 Rooted and built up in Him and established in faith 
just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Rooted and abounding. This is language referring to a flourishing planting. A situation where there is nourishment that is gleaned from its source. It's taken in by the means of the root. It is funneled through the whole of the, whole of the plant, as it were, until it flourishes in abounding fruit in thanksgiving and faith. Be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So again, equip them to walk, flourishing in spiritual growth, and finally, he is confident in the power of gospel understanding to fortify them, to fortify the church against arguments and worldviews to the contrary. Notice this in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How is one to stand in contradistinction, in distinct contrast to the world in which you live, where the entire thing, all the world system, revolves around idolatry. And any way to get ahead that is obvious and practical before you in life is to basically play a role in this whole system that denies the one true God and exalts philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world above the knowledge of Christ, of whom they remain utterly and totally ignorant, blind, and rebellious to. How could one stand in this kind of environment? Well, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Well, how are we, therefore, to, to see to it, to, to be uh, thoroughly fortified, to be sufficiently armed against these kinds of enemies? Well, he has already said, you need only to think, to uh, receive or to remember and consider the significance of what you have received in Christ Jesus your Lord, so walk in Him to be rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, to remember the beauty of baptism, to remember the glory of salvation will equip you to walk, will cause you to grow and flourish in spiritual fruit, and will fortify you against worldviews, arguments to the contrary. Next, Paul reminds the church of the object of their faith. Again, this is with reference to Christ Jesus the Lord. And this occurs in verse 9 and 10. Notice what he says. For in Him, that is, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If all of God dwelt in Christ, who was fully man, that is to say, in the hypostatic union, as we call it in theology, if Christ, the incarnate Son, was fully God and fully man, and furthermore, if you have a relationship so close to this individual, that, chapter, that verse 10 is true of you, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority, now we see why, the reason, furthermore, for Paul's confidence. He calls attention in these verses to the essence of Christ. He is the fullness. He is him in which the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's who Christ is. He is God the Father revealed in the flesh, or He is God, I should say, revealed in the flesh as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. Paul calls attention to the essence of Christ. He calls attention to our access to Christ. He says, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
you have become a partaker in this godly, in this uh, God-man, as it were. You have become so unified in communion and in relationship with Him that this has fundamentally changed everything about your nature. And now you have sufficient means to stand under all conditions. And finally, he draws our attention to the sovereignty of Christ. He says, You have been filled in Him who is, that is again speaking of Christ, the head of all rule and authority. So in summary, an introduction to the beauty of baptism expounded, Paul is confident that what baptism pictures and proclaims will equip the church to walk, it will provide flourishing spiritual growth and fruit, it will fortify them against arguments, all because what is emphasized in the truth of the gospel is the essence of Christ, our access to Christ, and the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the fullness of God dwells in man, the incarnation, or as I said, the hypostatic union. God is not diluted or watered down in Christ, but fully revealed and fully accessible, as it were, through our salvation, through our relationship with Him. More than this, by virtue of the believer's absolute, unique relationship with Jesus, we have been filled, indwelt, transformed by the very Spirit of God. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Trinity, has accomplished with every T cross and every I dotted the absolute necessity of everything that had to take place for our salvation, for redemption to be complete, for redemption to be real and to take effect in the heart of every true believer. This happens in the miracle of salvation. The effect of this salvation, this state of reconciliation with God, is therefore powerful indeed. How could it not be? The Spirit of God is said to be so closely associated with the believer as to indwell him. This is a powerful reality indeed. How could it not be? This is why in a day of abounding evil and suffocating darkness, Paul has no fear that a handful of believers in Colossae will stand in a day of idolatry because they stand with and in Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the one who by his own lips confessed that if he but said the word, legions upon legions of angels would intervene on his behalf, who spoke the cosmos into being by a word of his power and upholds it by the same. He is the one who is responsible for the life and breath of every human being the billions and billions who have been born, and of those untold millions, who knows, who will be. This is Jesus Christ Himself. And we have this kind of access to Him in our salvation? Wow! We have been indwelt and transformed by the very Spirit of God. The effect of this relationship is absolutely powerful. Therefore, we needn't fear or be moved or deceived by anything else because Christ Jesus has absolute authority and dominion over all, even death, sin, and the judgment, the hellfire judgment our sinful state deserved. Paul then further roots his readers in this truth. In typical Pauline form, he's going to expound it even more. He further roots his readers in the truth, telling the church exactly what happened to them when they were saved. What happened to you when you were saved? Do you ponder that question? Well, Paul expounds, he answers that question by giving us at least four categories. So let's consider the symbolic power of baptism this morning. 
Four ideas conveyed in baptism. You could say four ideas associated or that are significant in salvation as well. Number one, there's a covenant seal in view. Number two, union with Christ. Number three, ultimate resurrection. And number four, a victorious testimony. And so we get to the meat of our text today, and we'll consider in a little more detail verses 10, verses 11 through 15. First of all, let's consider verse 11 in light of this concept of a covenant seal. This idea is conveyed in baptism. What is pictured and proclaimed in baptism? Well, the seal of a covenant, the new covenant, in fact. In him also, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the Old Covenant, or during ancient times, and to some degree, we're not unfamiliar with the concept today, documents would be drafted to certify a very important relationship. You and your bank have a very important relationship concerning your home loan. You promise to pay, and they promise uh, to turn over your house to you when... The, the payment is in full. In the meantime, they pay the lender. They act as an intermediary. So these kinds of exchanges, relationships, agreements are signified. They're formalized with documents that certify the terms. And you, you're familiar, if you've been involved in American life much at all, that at the bottom, the thing that requires uh, your, the, the, thing that, that requires the, the uh, document to be a standing legal reality is the signature of both parties. And so once you have that signed document, it's an official, certified, legally binding agreement, and it establishes that covenant, if you will. It is the terms and conditions for that relationship. You might ask, if in a relationship with your bank and a home loan is important to require that kind of procedure, don't you think that the most important relationship of all, our relationship to the Lord, would also be signified by something similar or something far greater? And of course, the answer is yes. There is a covenant seal that God has provided. It is that document, if you will. It is that, it, it's that certification of authenticity that our relationship with the Lord is established in Christ. And in the Old Covenant, it was this act of circumcision, which is referenced here. And this act was not just a formality, a mere formality, but it was powerfully significant. And even in the new covenant, the act of, or the relationship forged between us and Christ is likewise attended. It is accompanied by a sign. The old covenant equivalent here referenced circumcision. This covenant act served to represent the following, the removal of sin a separation unto holiness, and inclusion in the family of God. It was a marker of identity that set apart a people who were in particular relationship with the Lord. Their participation in this sign, when their heart was in the right place, when it was observed biblically according to God's prescribed order, it certified that they had special privileges in the covenant. They had come to terms with a holy God. Their sin was atoned for. Blood had been shed. They had been set apart. They were included in this covenant community. But this act of circumcision told of a greater act still that would come. 
It prophesied. It prefigured. It was a picture of the cutting off of sin which would actually occur when Jesus Christ purchased our salvation on Calvary. The removal of sin, separation unto holiness, and inclusion in the family of God are concepts that the believer would have understood at the time, if he, even if he had lived in the Old Covenant. But baptism, Paul goes on to expound in this text, corresponds to this in a sense. It commemorates the New Covenant, that is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant type and shadow. Today, brothers and sisters, in this service, we celebrate and proclaim that by the power of Jesus' blood shed for them, Donnie and Judah are washed clean of sin and they are born again members of the body of Christ. And so today, you will witness a covenant seal. Have you ever seen a movie from the Middle Ages or an ancient uh, you know, a story where a scroll is delivered from a king with authority and power? Invariably, it will be rolled tightly, it will be stamped with a wax seal and an insignia that represents the authority, and it certifies that this document comes from the one who has the power to adjudicate, to enforce whatever it says. That seal right there, let's say you're rotting in prison for a crime that you did not commit, and your case was finally heard before the wise king. And he listens, he writes his decree, he rolls the scroll, he melts the wax and he seals it with his insignia and he hands it to his messenger to deliver to you in prison. And you receive this document, your hands are shaking with anticipation of what it might say, because you know the power that, repre- that is represented in that seal controls your fate. And you open it up and you read what it says. I hereby release you from all further obligation to pay for said crime. Today you are a free man. Sign the King of Kings. And tears stream down your face. And the guard says, I'm not letting you go. And you say, I'm a free man. Prove it. And you show him the insignia on this letter. And that same sense of moral obligation, fear, honor, and duty rushes into his heart. And you, the next thing you hear is the rattle of the keys. And you are set free from your prison cell. We were in prison, those of you who are believers in this room. And the bars were spiritual death. And the crime we absolutely committed. And when that letter was delivered to us, it read, free to go on the payment of the death of another. And that other was Jesus Christ, our Lord. And baptism is something like the seal that reminds us that we are absolutely free from the prison of death, hell, and sin because Jesus, our King of Kings, has paid the penalty for our crime. Baptism as a covenant seal. Secondly, baptism as union with Christ. Now this is a more complicated concept partly because it's unique to Scripture. What does it mean to be one with Christ? It's hard at first to get our minds around, but I would encourage you to spend a lot of time in Scripture saturating yourself with this concept. And if you just do a simple word search, you will find 
Paul himself references in Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord, or in or similar language, the concept of union with Christ something like 160 times. So let us explore it in our text today, verse 12. Having been buried with him, let's back up to 11, read it in context, in him, that is Christ. Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now notice verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is union with Christ expounded. Baptism is a picture of our experience, our shared experience with Jesus' work in redemption. At a later time, you could turn to Romans 5, 15 through 19. Or Romans 6, 3 through 5. That 6, 3 through 5 passage further associates baptism with this death and resurrection action and experience of Jesus Christ and our union with it. Romans 5, again in the greater context, describes two possible states of man. One is in Adam and the other is in Christ. Every creature born since Adam and Eve is born in Adam. That is, the experience of Adam in his sin is our shared experience by virtue of our union with him. Our association, our family relationship, you could say the spiritual blood poisoning has affected the entire human race. So to be in Adam is to be in sin. And this is the situation from which we need to be saved. Conversely, gloriously, Christ is described in Romans 5 as the new Adam. And therefore, when we are born again, that language is to become a new man, to be born into someone else. To be born into a new covenant relationship with a new representative head, which is Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Suddenly, now, the experience of Christ and His death for our sins and His resurrection is also our shared experience. This is covenant headship, representative headship, or federal headship, the terms that we see in theology to describe it. Jesus suffered, died, and rose again as my representative. He stood in for me. His experience is as good as if I had experienced it, and in fact, I did when he did. When Jesus suffered, my sins were punished. When he died, the old me and Adam passed away. When he rose again, I was born again, as it were. So I will also rise with him unto glory, even as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Think of David and Goliath, a picture of representative headship. After Goliath is defeated... He is the arch enemy of the people of God and he represents all of the wicked forces that have assailed against him. Once Goliath takes the stone to the forehead by the shepherd's sling, what does the enemy army do? Well, they run. They are overthrown and defeated. Why? Because their representative head was destroyed. Now, on the other side of the battle lines, what do the people of God do? They rejoice. It is right for each and every one to say, we won the battle. We have overcome. 
We are victorious. Israel won the battle that day by the action of one man's sling. He stood in for the people and earned their salvation from the enemy Philistines by an act of representative headship. And so all celebrated in their champion, David, who was a type of Christ. Christ himself took the sling of the cross as it were and threw that stone the heart into the head of Satan, crushed his head, as was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, and earned for us freedom. And we cry every Sunday that we meet. We are victorious. The battle is won. The context of our worship is celebratory because Jesus, our representative head, has won the battle for us. And we are in him. He represents us. His experience is ours to participate in, to enjoy. And what did we do to deserve it? And what did we do to earn it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Baptism pictures this. As Judah and Donnie go under the waters today, as the waters of baptism, the flood waters as it were, wash over their heads briefly as they did for Jonah. They can remember today, Judah and Donnie, remember this day that as those floodwaters rise over you, that Jesus was buried for you, that he died for you. And because this is true, you will rise from those waters. And as surely as you rise from those waters today, you will rise again to eternal life. All who are in him can do nothing else but rejoice and experience the victory of their representative warrior head, Jesus Christ, they are in Him. Baptism conveys covenant seal, union with Christ. Thirdly, baptism conveys ultimate resurrection. Building on that idea, Paul continues, verse 13, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The picture in view here is another document, a document that is officially run, rendered null and void. There is, say, a rap sheet or a testimony you might have in our legal system today of all the felonies, legitimate crimes against you. Uh, there was a time, I'm told, in ancient legal systems where there would be a formal procedure or ritual that would take place that would render that statement of offense null and void. And in some cases, they would literally drive a nail right through that paper. It meant more in those days, paper was expensive. Or they would cut that paper. And in so doing, it represented that this document no longer carried the weight of testimony against the accused. And this is exactly the picture that we see Paul employing when he says that the testimony, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, our sin which deserves the punishment of hell, this he, Christ, set aside, nailing it to the cross. And when he did this, it was ultimate resurrection. Paul describes the condition of what we deserve in our sin. The wages of sin is absolutely death. And this condition, even though we enjoy for a brief moment of time physical life, 
It is nothing but, in fact, in reality, ultimately speaking, a state of death and destruction. Impending judgment, doom that hangs over our head. If you think of this life as an unbeliever, like a man asleep or awake, maybe better said, on the guillotine. You imagine those stalks that hold your body down. And you imagine that, ancient, you know, that, that instrument of torture developed in uh, revolutionary France and there's this weighted blade. How alive is that individual if he's laying there and he's trapped, he cannot move, and that blade is actually in air? It's just a matter of time. We say in that instance he's dead to rights. And this is the case for us. Not only were we dead to rights physically as the wages of sin is death, but the separation from God that our sin represents is actual spiritual death. However, Jesus, in taking our sin upon himself, the nails of divine wrath were driven into his crucified body. These satisfied the justice of Almighty God. And these nails canceled the wages of sin for Judah and Donnie and every believer in this room. And those wages were ultimate death. Listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. Those who are in sin are dead in sin, as the death of the body consists in its separation from the soul, so the death of the soul consists in its separation from God and the divine favor. Let me read that to you again. Those who are in sin are dead in sin, as the death of the body consists in the separation from the soul, so the death of the soul consists in its separation from God and the divine favor. Adam and Eve died the day they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why was that spiritual death a reality? Because immediately their soul was separated from God and from His divine favor. Just as physical death entails the separation of our physical body from our spirit. So those who would be baptized today, those who have been baptized, remember that as, that as you are drawn from the waters this day, remember that you have been resurrected from the death of sin. And I encourage you, if you have been baptized in this room, remember as you were drawn from the waters, in the same sense, in that picture, and that profoundly speaks to the reality of being resurrected from the death of sin. Because when you were born again, something fundamental changed. No longer was your soul in separation from God. No longer was there an eternal distance with hell in between, between you and His divine favor. But you were reconciled once for all and perfectly in Christ Jesus. Your sin paid for, ultimate resurrection, both body and soul, promised and delivered in your salvation. Final idea this morning conveyed in baptism, victorious testimony. Verse 15, Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The picture in this case is a victory celebration after a warrior has defeated his enemies. And in ancient times, that would commence with a parade where he would ride in full battle regalia and streamers waving, confetti and flowers, people cheering, 
dancing and singing in the streets, and behind his chariot would be chained with head down and shame covering their faces and stripped to just simple clothing, all of his conquered foes. And in this picture of uh, the champions celebrating his victory, the evidence of his exploits would trail behind him in this victory procession. And this is what happened when Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities on the cross. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God the Father defeated our enemies and chained them to the, to the chariot of Christ's finished work on Calvary so that Satan's sin, uh, the flesh, death, the grave, and hell itself were taken captive in that great act on Calvary. As we see this, the cross of Jesus, as we see that it has stripped our final enemy of all his authority and all his weapons, our hearts should be greatly encouraged. The record of sin has been nullified and nailed to the cross. Death has been defeated in Jesus Christ's resurrection. Satan will suffer himself in the lake of fire that he wished upon us. And as you step out of the waters of baptism today, again, Judah and Don, remember the advice of John Calvin, I adjure you. He said that men ought to, after they come to Christ, live their life with one foot slightly lifted, ready to step into glory. One foot slightly lifted, ready to step into glory. And that is a little picture reminder of how, how sure our eternal life is in Jesus Christ. Just as we are pulled from the waters of baptism, we will be pulled into glory eternal, into eternal life by the power of Jesus Christ. How can it be otherwise if we are in Him and if we share in His experience? If His death was the death of the judgment for our sin and our old man, if His life was our born-again state, if His resurrection secured and assured our resurrection both from the death of sin and unto a glorious new body and new heaven and new earth. One day, these thoughts help us. No matter how dark the trial, no matter how deep the opposition, no matter how rabid the rebellion of the society around us, they give us grace to live with one foot slightly lifted, ready to step into glory. Reading one more time, verses 6 and 7. You could say at the end of all this, you could circle right back around to what Paul has said in introduction of these thoughts. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So in light of your baptism, therefore walk in Him. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. For Donnie and Judah, that is their new life. And for all who are believers in the room, they join us in praising the Lord because of His great work ransoming all of us. Let us pray, Let us pray in transition. Oh Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the monumental cosmic work that was accomplished on Calvary that saved our souls. We are also thankful for the precious picture that proclaims this in baptism this day. Thank you that we get to participate in it. 
Now, as we commence to do exactly that, Lord, I pray that you would bless, especially Donnie and Judah, this day. Seal upon their hearts that certificate of authenticity, that absolute assurance of their salvation, so that they love and live for in and for Jesus Christ all the days of their life. And in the course of their life, testifying to the same, they're able to join, be joined by many others who come to the faith as a result of their faithfulness and testimony. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.